You're listening to the ProcureTech Podcast, your weekly show for all that's cooking in the digital procurement space. Yes, we've got the hottest startups, thought leadership and conversation from visionary industry experts and definitely no stiff corporate content. I'm your host, James Meads, procurement pro, digital nomad and ProcureTech fanboy. And now here's this week's show. Yes, hello and welcome to another edition of the ProcureTech podcast, where every week we bring you everything that is fun, innovative and exciting in the digital procurement space, because digitization is the future of procurement, along with better stakeholder management, more supplier engagement and all of that lovely stuff. It's part of a quilt that we knit together to ensure that we get the focus on our profession that we need to. And today I'm going to be looking at a sector that I very, very rarely look at and talk about, quite possibly because I know absolutely nothing about it. But my guest today is an expert in that field and it's going to be great to dig into something that we've not really explored much on the show in the past. I'm talking about the public sector. And my guest today hails from the UK, but public sector processes around procurement are generally pretty similar in most jurisdictions, at least in developed markets. So it'd be great to dig into a little bit around that and to understand how digitization and some of the challenges and opportunities uh, can fit into the sphere of public procurement. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome Grant Smith, COO of Elcom to the ProcureTech podcast. Grant, welcome to the show. Hi, James. Thanks. So, Grant, just before we dig into this and dive into the meat uh, the meat on the bone, just give us a really quick overview of Elcom as a provider, just to set the context in terms of what do you do and who do you serve? And then we can we can sort of pick up the conversation and talk more about the, the specifics. Perfect. Yeah, sure. So um, Elcom uh, started out in the United States in the early 1990s um, as a hardware reseller. And we developed a piece of software with uh, MIT over in Boston called PCOS to run the ordering uh, and procurement process for the business. Dot-com bubble burst in the late 90s. and We sold the hardware business and focused on our software business in the supply chain and procurement space. We were awarded the Scottish Government P2P service, procurement pay service in 2001, uh, and we're still running that service, having gone through several competitive tender processes in the meantime. The service is run as a shared service by the Scottish Government for and on behalf of the entire Scottish public sector, and we process nearly £8 billion of Scottish public sector spend through the system each year out of a total Scottish public sector spend of just over £12 billion. We also do a lot of work in the rest of the UK, specifically in the health and education space. And our, our software covers um, sourcing, ca- contract catalogue management, P2P, inventory, point of care, analytics, e-trading and e-marketplace. And we also have a set of supplier services covering opportunity alerts, supplier certification, bid management and electronic funding. So very much a full stack source to pay suite, albeit in a very focused niche just for context. And and I think in all honesty, it's such a saturated market right now that you have to niche down, don't you, to be able to survive in this space because you know there, there are so many technological solutions out there. I mean, I think 
we've got 48, I think, on procurementsoftware.site that are, that are, that, that fall under the umbrella of source to pay in, in some shape or form. So that's an, an, an interesting backdrop. So can you then just give a very, broad overview of how public sector procurement is different to the private sector, just maybe highlight some of the major differences and how that may impact selection of a tech platform in terms of some of the features or what it can do or what you need it to do. Sure. So yeah, the, the, the so main difference between public and private sector is public sector procurement is quite heavily regulated. So there are thresholds um, in terms of the value of the goods, works or services that you're buying um, that, that need to be advertised and go through a formal process. So, you know, things like uh, sourcing that there needs to be, uh, depending on, you know, what's called open restricted type procedures, um, they need to be followed quite rigidly on the, uh, the sort of public uh, procurement regulated uh, side. On the private sector, mostly it's, um, you know, you, you would go out, you get your quotes, you'd look at your price and your technical uh, submissions and you make a decision on who you're awarding to. On the public sector, on the public sector side, there's a lot more rules and regulations that you need to follow in terms of minimum number of bidders, the ratio between uh, price and technical and the, uh, the evaluation process that you need to go through and the documentation that you need to go through should the uh, procurement be challenged, um, which is the, the key thing on the public sector side that the awarding authorities protect against. So would it be fair to say then that the sort of requisition to invoice process is not vastly different between public and private, but the if we're talking about transactional spend, but the the sourcing side is very very different. And if you're looking at doing e-sourcing in the public sector, then the platform that you use and the features that that would need is going to be you know significantly different from what might be okay in private sector. Absolutely. I mean, you know, look at it from pre-award and post-award. So post-award, public and private sector are pretty similar. So as you say, requisition through to payment is is a fairly similar process. Pre-award, so the actual sourcing. Um, the, the contract award up to the contract award, that's quite, quite different. And there's quite a, a, a lot of, um, hoops and hurdles that, that need to be, um, that need to be gone through on the public sector side that don't necessarily need to be done on the private sector side. Got it. Okay. So if we talk then about digitization at large in terms of opportunities that could be out there for, for the sectors that, that, that you're strongest in, let's take two examples that you mentioned healthcare as one and then, and, and then sort of wider government or, or education. So give me an example of healthcare. How, how, how do you see digitization benefiting healthcare procurement specifically? And, uh, you know, I'll have to caveat that then if we're talking in a UK context. Healthcare is predominantly public sector, but in a lot of countries, obviously, with the US as being the obvious example, it's it's not. Sure. So, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if you, it may be useful for me to talk about, you know, the sort of inventory and point of care space, uh, which is in the health space in particular. So this is after you've gone through, you know, sort of a, a procurement process and, and how you're dealing with the logistics and the inventory and the consumption of that inventory. And in the UK, there's a, a, a sort of good initiative called Scan for Safety, which um, is about um, barcode scanning and, you know, is, is about basically improving patient safety. So you know what items, what consumables, uh, you know, are, are take place and are um, sort of applied to a patient during a particular procedure. 
So we, we've got software that covers uh, that entire process. And, uh, you know, scanning of barcodes is a great way to capture data, um, like stock take data, item consumed during a procedure, knowing who's in the room during a procedure and where procedure is taking place. But uh, I think a, a great uh, innovation here is, is looking at um, something like RFID. Uh, and that's something that I think is going to quite considerably revolutionize how care is provided, costed and tracked in a clinical environment. So, you know, going back to barcodes, you know, things like staff badges, items that, you know, you're using in a procedure and the actual stock take process itself, that requires barcodes to be applied to the staff badges themselves, the the, the items, um, and also requires the clinicians and the operations staff to use those barcode readers uh, throughout the, the process or the procedure. RFID, though, is something that will remove those costs and barriers. But until recently, RFID readers and the little the tags, the labels or the packaging, which needs to be applied to each item, um, was cost prohib- prohibitive. But we're now seeing those costs are reducing each day. And our software is able to use both the RFID and or the barcodes. So if you just think of the day when manufacturers are including simple RFID packaging on their items, like they do now with barcodes, the staff badges would have little RFID tags embedded, as would each location. And, uh, you know, if you, you imagine a stock take, which is a heavily manual process, requires someone to scan each of the items uh, in the stock room, that would be a much more straightforward uh, process where a simple RFID, a simple RFID reader would gather the data, pass on to our software, and a procedure would involve a simple reader recording the items as they're consumed within the procedure and capturing which clinicians were, in, were within the room. And this all aligns with these initiatives, but um, uh, allows a much better and granular capture of data without this manual uh, barcode reading. And that's a fantastic example from healthcare. But I'm just thinking, you know, my background is predominantly coming from industrial manufacturing or consumer goods businesses. And that would be a very viable solution also for something like storeroom spare parts, wouldn't it? In terms of Absolutely. you know consumable consumable, you know, wear and tear parts on machinery and equipment and the classic scenario that if someone takes something out of the stores on night shift, it often doesn't get booked out properly. That that would solve that problem too, right? Correct. Yes, it would. And we're already seeing this in retail, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, some of these um, automated supermarkets where, you know, you pick up the items, put them in your in your basket, you walk out the door and it automatically charges your credit card. Um, I, I definitely think this is going to certainly hit the health um, environment and, and, as you say, probably other uh, other um, areas as well. Ah, So that's the technology behind the the uh, Amazon convenience stores then as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Ah, okay. I didn't know that. Every day's a school day. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, so just a quick interlude to let you know about procurementsoftware.site. This is a new website that I recently launched to give you, the listener, a free-to-access intuitive guide to digital procurement technology. You can filter on a multitude of different criteria and pick out a short list of procurement software solutions that are relevant to your business and your needs in less time than it takes to boil an egg. No corporate subscriptions, no complex jargon, and definitely no pay-to-play model. We are a completely transparent, open book, and we really want to get your feedback on 
what we can really do to make this user experience better and constantly improve so as we're providing value to you. Check out procurementsoftware.site. And now let's get right back to this week's podcast. So the the other one then is around more more sort of local government procurement. And particularly, I'd like to get your thoughts on this around there are, there are two things. I mean, again, we're using the UK as an example here, but you know, this this sort of holds sway in most government, local government procurement. There's a big focus on looking at ESG and, and ensuring that, that that that's embedded into the procurement process. But local government, especially, are also you know very keen on improving access to 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 the the opportunities to to win business for for small and medium-sized enterprises and SMEs. So are these two objectives conflicting when you look at the increased amount of legislation and bureaucracy around, you know, having an ESG policy and, and, and working towards that versus, you know, the average small business typically won't have the resources, you know, they probably don't have an in-house legal department or, a, or, or or some of the resources that are required to facilitate that. So, you know, what are, what are your thoughts on that? And how can, with what Elcom is doing, how can you provide analytics or, or the ability to track and trace that? Sure. Well, you know, I think um, one of the biggest uh, complaints from, from all small businesses is that the the public procurement process, certainly in the UK, is too bureaucratic. So, you know, when, when a tender is released, a lot of SMEs are put off by the the cost and the um, and the hassle of of producing, you know, the, the 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 responses that are required. And certainly, ESG is just another another thing, another set of factors that need to be added to that to that process. But in the in the sourcing and the contract management space in particular, we're definitely seeing a move away. So this is in the public uh, sector, a move away from purely a pricing technical evaluation um, to also include environmental social governance factors. You know, so that from, from the public sector point of view, they're, they're looking at whether, you know, those suppliers are engaged in risky or unethical type behavior. It's common now for a warning authority to ask for an environmental plan with a net zero commitment uh, for a commitment. No employees are paid less than living wage, or a statement about gender pay gap that may exist in the organisation. And we're also seeing, you know, a lot of the tenders we partake in, um, statements around how the business activities that your organisation is engaged in positively impacts the local economy and society. And it's more than just creating jobs. So things like, you know, are you taking on young adults and training them up with valuable skills that will benefit society at large? So whilst I, I absolutely understand why a lot of the warning authorities are doing that, because um, of course you want to see that stuff, I, I think there's, there's definitely barriers or perceived barriers at least to, to smaller businesses engaging in those, in those uh, you know, opportunities as they come out. Isn't part of this whole risk, though, that the data that's taken as being the authority on, on, the, on these types of evaluations or analytics Big business have got the money to lobby government or, or in the case of Europe, the EU, in terms of how that evaluation, how that definition is put together. The small guy doesn't have. So is there a risk that potentially this could be done to, to unfairly give an advantage to big business in the way that this data is put together and is seen as being the, the sort of source of truth? 
I, I think there is that risk, but you know, so I guess another interesting angle from our perspective is that analytics space. So, you know, for example, we 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 take spend data. So, um, what I mean by that is accounts payable data directly out of various finance systems, and that uh, that data we we clean that data, we categorize it, we augment it, and uh, you know, we can present that back to give deeper insights into the actual spend. So, you know, what, what I'm trying to say is from literally a single line of accounts payable data, which usually includes a pay name, a few word description of what's been bought or no description at all, who's paying and a price, we can start to deconstruct and determine, you know, who that supplier is, where they're located, what the nature of the, the business of that supplier, whether they're an SME or not. We can do duplicate payment analysis, off-contract spend analysis, estimate CO2 analysis, gender social quality analysis, and also local impact analysis in terms of economic impact analysis. And this, this, um, so regardless of whether it's being skewed by a large business, we, we can actually nail down into the type of spend, uh, what impact that spend's having on the environment or the society, or at least to give indicators to it. And then that should in turn influence back, if that's the way society wants to go, what um, the public sector are actually buying. So it shouldn't disenfranchise, you know, just giving that visibility of what's actually being spent should not disenfranchise smaller businesses. That's really insightful, actually. So you know, one, of, one of the things that we battle with is, uh, as procurement, and I talk about it all the time, is that procurement that data or spend data, vendor master data is usually garbage. So you're saying then that as long as you can identify you know, who the vendor is as a, as a corporate entity or as a limited liability company through, through, through who's being paid, then that can lead to a lot of additional or data that can augment that around, you know, how that company sits in terms of the, the, the wider criteria that you're evaluating against. Absolutely. And we, we do look up. So we, we bring in, so, you know, you, you've highlighted the classic, you know, duplicate supplier or how do you identify the, the, the organization? So we bring in data from like Companies House, Charity Commission, uh, Care Quality Commission, um, and we can uh, roll up the, uh, the, the, you know, what's often the case, you know, multiple ways of identifying the same supplier. And we can roll them up into a parent-child entity so that we can identify to the main, you know, company's house record for that entity. But we also keep the child entities. So, you know, um, things like Tesco, which is a, you know, huge uh, uh, UK uh, supermarket, they're headquartered, um, you know, Welwyn Garden City. And we would identify that as a parent. But each of the, each of the, the, the supermarkets spread across the whole country, we, we would then be able to identify the spend against that particular local entity. And that's quite important because when you're looking at local impact analysis, it doesn't, all the money doesn't necessarily flow to the, 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 the headquarter of that particular entity, but a lot of it is spent and can be spent locally to each of the, the child entities. Um, so, so absolutely. Yeah, that's that. That's yeah. It's really interesting because yeah, it, it is a problem that we always complain about is quality of data, and you know, there's there's no easy way around that because just more people touch procurement data in an organisation than would touch sales or customer data, and you're always going to have more suppliers than you are customers. Typically, I mean, public sector is perhaps a little bit different in that regard, but unless you're a B two C e commerce company you're always going to have messier supplier data than you are customer data because because of the ratio of you know number of vendors versus number of um, versus number of customers so 
Let's look a little bit at e-sourcing. I was keen to pick your brain on this one because Alcom's got an integrated e-sourcing function within it as a source to pay system rather than a procure to pay. My challenge on that would be this is a really saturated market and there are a number of really, really good best of breed e-sourcing solutions out there. What drove you to continue offering that rather than just partnering with a, a, a solution out there that's that, that's ahead of their head of their field or that looks really nice on the on the front end to use because it's it's a lot of investment to keep it up to date isn't it right rather than a, a more simple sort of p2p system so what what's the logic behind that of course i mean the you know the, the first thing to point out is the elcom uh, software is modular so we do a, a lot of our customers uh, do have their own sourcing systems or their preferred sourcing system and we integrate with that into the rest of the uh, of the process um but um there are still some authorities out there especially in the public sector that don't have sourcing tools so there's still a gap in that market and we, um, you know, we continue to develop the software because there's still a demand uh, for that software. Certainly in the education space, we are seeing, you know, the more the sort of unregulated, so the quick quote, you know, that that sort of side of things is, is very much uh, still in demand. Um, and, you know, we, we've got a, a nice niche there in that market where, um, you know, there's certainly a, a lot of demand for that type of service. But, um, you know, you're absolutely right in terms of the sourcing, there's a a lot of change in the regulation, and that requires a lot of, of upkeep in the system. But um, for now, still, the numbers for us add up that uh, you know we're, we're, we're generating revenue on that front. But equally, it's um, it's modular, so we can um, you know we can integrate and do integrate with um, other sourcing systems on the market. Yeah, and that's an infra- interesting differentiation. Actually, going back to the, to, to the point that you made that the, there is a difference between a, a quick and dirty quotation request that you just want to use as a single source of truth to have in the same platform versus a more strategic sourcing exercise, which, as you alluded to earlier on in the in, in the interview, the public sector sourcing process is fundamentally different to that of the private sector. So if you're going out and looking at sourcing software that's you know, predominantly looking at private sector as its customer base, then it, it, it may or probably won't fit what you need it to do sort of more on the more on the upfront, on the upstream end of uh, of what you have to do in the public sector to when when you do a strategic sourcing exercise. Yeah. So, final question, Grant, and this is the easiest one. If anyone would like to find out a little bit more about what you're doing or connect, what's the best way that people can get in touch? So, uh, get in touch. We um, so elcom.com is our website, um, and we have uh, all the various social media channels to get in touch with us and LinkedIn as well. People can link in with me directly. Uh, and or the company. Um, So that's the best ways. Fantastic. And we will drop all of that into the show notes. Uh, Grant, thanks very much. It's been really insightful for me, actually, to get an idea of how public sector differs from private sector and some of the some of the challenges in this space, because it isn't something that we've really looked at historically. So, uh, so yeah, glad to glad to get your wisdom on that. And thanks for coming on. Thanks for your time, James. Enjoyed it. Thanks. So that was Grant from Elcom talking all about source to pay in the public sector and some of the opportunities that could lie out there, as well as some of the challenges that a more regulated environment can put in front of us. Hope that was also useful to everyone out there that's listening, because maybe we should do a little bit more in this sector because it is a huge uh, amount of spend when we look at what governments spend on a global scale. Just a quick one before we sign off. 
procurementsoftware.site is your go-to place if you want a quick and easy solution to find a short list of procurement technology that meets your individual criteria in less time than it takes to boil an egg. Don't forget, like us on LinkedIn, subscribe to the podcast. If you like what you hear, there are plenty of other procurement podcasts out there. So we're really glad that you decided to listen to us today. Thank you again for listening. And until next week, see you again. Bye for now.